Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Wilfrid Laurier University's Dr. Tim Elcombe has some advice for our Olympians heading to Beijing. He says, be careful what you say. The Globe and Mail's Bill Curry details the costs the Trudeau government has incurred by paying billions to third-party contractors. And pollster Mario Canseco looks at who's behind all those annoying robocalls we get every day. So, let's get started. Dr. Tim Elcombe joining us now from Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, to talk about the Olympics. And of course, they're only a couple of weeks away and the security surrounding the Olympics, uh, particularly by the host country and the directions that athletes and Olympic delegations are receiving from their countries, basically saying uh, you're walking into a, a real buzzsaw of communications. Dr. Elcombe wrote a, a piece called Get Caught Up in the Olympic Spirit. But keep your political eyes wide open. Dr. Tim Elcombe, good morning. Apologies for the technical issue, sir. Thank you for your patience. No worries. It gave me a few minutes to dream of seven degrees in uh, in sunny. I'm certainly not experiencing that here. (laughs) Yeah, A little cold in southern Ontario this weekend, Tim. No question about it. It is. It is. But thank you very much. No, No problem on the delay. Uh, it's good to have you with us, sir. Now, let's talk a little bit about the directions that the United States and other countries, including Canada, are giving to our Olympic delegations, because essentially they're saying, take burner phones and don't take your own personal devices because, well, it's going to be subject to the kind of scrutiny you can't even imagine. Are are you on side with those warnings? Well, <laughs> I mean, the reality is, if this is coming and be sort of being publicly presented, then I would think that people who understand what's going on in China in communications probably have some insight as to, you know, why that directive is coming. And so, you know, it's, it's the idea of, you know, if, if the Olympics are going to be hosted in China, these were some of the challenges and issues that uh, athletes and delegates and officials were going to have to deal with. And so right. the, the reality is coming uh, quickly to, to, to having Beijing host the Games. Well, you point out in this in this uh, article that you did at the conversation, and it's really good uh, to, because the country you, you take a look at the countries that host Olympic events, and you you point out you say, "quote It's no coincidence that in the twenty first century, nations often at the margins of the established world order." regularly host mega sporting events or even invest in high profile sporting clubs this to end uh, rather to lend some kind of aura of legitimacy to what they're up to isn't it yes they, they, there's actually a term that's that's developed for this they call it sport washing uh, and it's the idea that you know images can be crafted and identities can be can be shaped and presented in a certain way uh, to in particular sort of the western world uh, and so, you know, if you look at nations like China and Russia and Brazil and India and in the uh, in the Middle East, you know, you see a, a significant investment in again mega sporting events like the Olympics or the World Cup, soccer, FIFA uh, World Cup. Uh, you've got things like Formula One happening in these these countries. Uh, you've got uh, major uh, soccer clubs being purchased. And so it's, it's very much about presenting an image to the world of, of sort of integrating into sort of, the, the, as, I, as I said, the, the world order with quotation marks. 
So now, uh, uh, as an individual athlete or a representative from any co- country, um, would you, for example, recommend what our uh, del- what the Americans are saying? Take a burner phone uh, it, it, as a, a sort of a preemptive strike at the security apparatus you're about to face. Probably. Now, again, I, I think part of the question is, you know, what are athletes intending on doing with their phones? I mean, you know, if you know, you have some athletes that are, are going to be thinking about, you know, engaging potentially political protests. And we've seen right. uh, in some ways we've seen uh, athletes emboldened to engage in political uh, discussions and to present their ideas. Uh, and, and it seems that the Black, the, the, the Black Lives Matter and the pandemic seems to have really sort of uh, sort of accelerated this. And so mm-hmm. for those athletes, I would imagine, I think lots of athletes, they're going as athletes, you know, they're going to return as athletes. They're, they're going to sort of avoid that political fray. So I'm not sure there's too much in, in the way of concern there. Do you um, do you think that um, there are some individuals specifically heading to Beijing, hoping to uh, win at their event and uh, with an agenda to add some kind of messaging to that? I mean, uh, you're right that there is an emboldening factor that has taken place over the past few Olympics, exacerbated, if nothing else, by the pandemic. Do you think there are individuals heading to Beijing on a mission, so to speak, Tim? I think this might be the most fascinating question of the Olympics, because certainly in Tokyo, athletes did. And the IOC for a long time held a very strict policy about any form of protest within sort of the Olympic events. Uh, And they softened that stance in Tokyo, recognizing that athletes were going to do it and it was going to put them in a difficult position. This is a whole new ballgame to to engage in some kind of protest in China will be so so i don't know because you know it is such an unknown in terms of how the how the chinese authorities will respond to that and how the ioc will respond to that because again in tokyo athletes did protest even on the olympic podium which again Mm -hmm. you know this we go back to 1968 the the the, uh protest of uh, tommy smith and john carlos the black power salute i mean they were kicked out of the olympic games so it's going to be, I think, one of the most fascinating non-sporting issues is will athletes protest? And uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about the bubble. Now, we've certainly had experience with the Tokyo example in a summer environment, mind you, Tim. But uh, the the bubble that was surrounding the athletes and participants in Tokyo was, of course, all about COVID-19. The mm-hmm. Chinese host country is uh, has also established a bubble, ostensibly because of COVID-19. But they've added a few of their own security enhancements, haven't they? Yes. And I mean, that, that's, again, pre-pandemic, there was likely to be a bit of a, we might call it a bubble. Uh, I think, you know, if you want to see an example of this recently, pre-pandemic, Russia in 2018 hosted the World Cup, uh, soccer, men's uh, soccer World Cup, you know, and there were a lot of restrictions in terms of where journalists could go, or at least sort of some, some uh, you know, sort of converging where athletes and, and journalists would go or where, where uh, tourists were. And so there came back this presentation of Russia as this really friendly, happy place. And in many mm-hmm. ways, they manipulated that. So, you know, China, I think even pre-pandemic would have been putting in a lot of those measures in terms of controlling the narrative, 
you know, access points, you know, how they present the host city. I mean, again, we go back to Brazil, how they, they cleaned up, you know, um, you know, in terms of, of moving people out of, of various regions. Right. And, you know, cleaning up the streets, again, is sort of the language that was used. So I think this idea of this, this shaping the presentation was always going to happen. And in some ways, the pandemic makes it even easier for them to do that. And uh, as far as advice to if you and uh, you haven't been solicited to do so, but Tim, if you were asked by the uh, Canadian Olympic Committee to provide a few pearls of wisdom to our delegates in advance of their departure with respect to personal security, particularly, and the point of your article that brought you to our attention in the first place, keep your political eyes wide open while indeed, sure, you get caught up in the Olympic spirit. How would you flesh that out for our delegation? Well, again, I think the athletes and I think the, the delegates are in a really difficult spot because in the end, most of the people who are going are athletes, they're sports persons. They may or may not be trained in international affairs and political discourse and, you know, high level, you know, security. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I, I think they have to, you know, athletes should be permitted to be athletes in this in this environment, recognizing that they can't escape the fact that they are, to some degree, instruments of the state. You know, they're going to represent Canada. They put Canada on their chest. I, I would suggest that the bigger pressure should be put on people who are in positions to use the Olympic Games to highlight some of the issues going on, whether that's journalists, whether that's in the political environment. Uh, so, you know, so if if organizations like the IOC are going to continue to have hosts like uh, China with these mega events, then mm-hmm. I think the the other side of that then is, well, then there has to be in scrutiny. And so I, I think it'd be difficult to tell athletes that, you know, they should go and they should take political stands. That's asking a lot of people who sure. they that's not necessarily what their training is. And in fact, in many cases, they uh, would, would uh, bend over backwards to avoid any kind of involvement, uh, seeking the sort of neutrality of sport. Uh, one can imagine that being fair, a, a pretty easy place to go to for a lot of them. Absolutely. You know, and so and the, the main point of my article was, you know, that we I wasn't trying to argue that we should boycott or athletes shouldn't go or there should be major protests. Right. But the idea is that that we can't separate the political context from what's happening in sport we never have uh it's just it's becoming so obvious and so overt now that you know if we are going to watch the olympic games we should cheer on our athletes we should watch our athletes we should enjoy the sporting activities but i think it also is an opportunity for us to become more educated and aware of what's happening in places like china or in the winter when the world cup will be in qatar right it's it's an opportunity to sort of widen our, our political scope but at the same time we can then switch and watch the sporting event as sport when we had uh, Dick Pound from the Canadian International uh, Olympic Committee on the show uh, a few weeks ago, Tim, he talked to us about those those rules of the, that have been established uh, by the Olympic Committee themselves with respect to athletes and making political statements and those sorts of things. And subsequent, of course, to 1968, uh, uh, mm-hmm. some of some of those rules were were written for the first time, and uh, so now there are those guidelines in place. Uh, do you and, and, and what the concern would be here is that China is using using those guidelines as a framework uh, within which they build their own uh, security and surveillance systems. 
Yes. I mean, when diplomatic boycotts were announced by the United States and Canada and several other countries, you know, uh, China's immediate response was that they were politicizing the Olympic Games. They were using it as a, as a, as a political tool and right. there was no place for that in sport. And this is echoed typically by the IOC uh, and, and many other sort of internal members of the sporting community that the sport and politics don't mix. Uh, I'm just not sure you can take that that point. I, I think it's fair to say that you know that there are complexities to sport, and you could that sport is at once political and not political. And you know, athletes are going to participate in in effectively games. It's the Olympic sure. Games, but yeah. you can't separate not just the the hosting of the games, but all the elements of of, of sport and mega sport, and you know, systems and government involvement and government uh, support. And so, I just think. The idea that that you know we have this clear division between sport and politics. The idea that sport exists in a in a in a non political bubble. I just don't think works. Right, right, and and uh, we've certainly received an abundance of evidence over the years. Uh, Tim, it's going to be a fascinating Olympics. Um, are you uh, expecting ratings? Uh, final question here here in North America with all of the mm. animosity, et cetera, and all the, the sideshow going on around China. Do you expect the ratings to be good or are a lot of individuals going to take a flying pass, do you think? Well, I would suspect they'll be good. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in terms of what's going on. I think the, the, the reality is that, that for some people watching sport is, the irony is that it's a bit of an escape from the problems of the world. Sure. Again, it's that, that, that's part of that idea of complexity of sport. In some ways, it's, a, it's an escape from our everyday problems to sit and watch a game. But they, uh, the other side of it is it's deeply embedded in all the problems that we, we live so I would suspect there's going to be a lot of interest, a lot of intrigue uh, on the non-sporting side, which will draw viewers. I think there are lots of people who will be interested just because it's, you know, uh, on the sporting side. And Canada certainly in the past few Olympic Games has raised their level in terms of podium performance. So I think there's there potentially is some excitement there. So I would think that the ratings will be strong. But mm. again, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction will be. No question. The article at theconversation.com, friends, get caught up in the Olympic spirit, but keep your political eyes wide open. The author, Dr. Tim Elcombe from Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. Tim, thanks very much for this this morning. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Sterling. Federal government spending on outsourcing contracts has increased by more than 40% since the Liberals took power, a trend at odds with the party's 2015 campaign promise to cut back on the use of consultants. The headline on Story 1, Liberals spend billions more on outsourced contracts since taking power. The story co-authored by the Deputy Bureau, Ottawa Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail, Bill Curry, who joins us this morning from the nation's capital. Bill, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks a lot. Good to have you with us. You uh, did a two-part story, you and Mahima Singh, in The Globe this week, all about government spending and the second half talking about the, the specifics of a consulting firm called McKinsey. But back us up, Bill, if you can, for a couple of seconds and, and remind us of what happened in 2015, because at that time, there was an actual commitment to reduce party third-party spending by the federal government, Correct. Exactly, yeah. So 2015, uh, that was the, the uh, election where the Trudeau Liberals uh, defeated Stephen Harper and the Conservatives. 
And they said uh, their big thing was they were going to run short-term deficits of $10 billion uh, per year and wind that down to a balanced budget by the end of their term. Mm -hmm. And part of that, uh, part of how they were going to do that in the platform was uh, to uh, do a spending review and find ways to save money. And they targeted uh, outsourcing contracts for things like IT or management consulting uh, as an area to save money. And so we went through the uh, the books over the years since then because the, the most recent numbers had just been tabled. And uh, clearly the trend has gone the complete opposite direction. It's been climbing ever since 2015. And this isn't just a pandemic thing. It was climbing uh, right up to the pandemic and continued climbing into the pandemic. Yeah, Bill. Now, correspondingly, with the increase in public tax dollars being spent on third-party consultants or uh, employees of one description or another, it's not as though the civil service hasn't grown in size since 2015 as well. Tell us about that part, please. Yes, definitely. So, um under the Conservatives, the size of the federal public service went down for a bit, and then uh, the first few years, the Liberals, it uh, climbed back up to uh, uh, where it was before, and then has kept climbing. So since 2015, the public service has been up, uh, the size of it has increased by about 24%. And so economists are saying, well, well, what's going on here? Like, theory, In theory, you might do more outsourcing if you were trying to cut costs and... Uh, yeah, you know, do less uh, through the traditional public service. So right. what's going on if you're doing both? Why is the public service increasing by such a large amount? And you're also doing a big increase in outsourcing. Something here doesn't make sense. Exactly. So what is the government? Because the prime minister was asked about this week. This has been a big story that you broke earlier in the week, Bill. So what's the official party line on this increase on both sides? <laughs> uh, well, the, yeah, the uh, Trudeau wasn't too uh, wasn't too worried about it when we asked about it. Um, so he, he was just saying, you know, sometimes you need outsourcing uh, help on on big files, and um, it's pretty interesting. Like they made no reference to w- explaining why their that platform commitment from 2015 came and went. Uh, the all the three opposition parties, in contrast, are uh, quite concerned about this, and uh, they've uh, the Conservatives have written a letter to the Auditor General, the Bloc Québécois, and the NDP are supportive of that move, and they'd like to see an audit uh, of federal outsourcing, particularly with, uh, as you mentioned, the second story, which is uh, a major increase in contracts going to McKinsey and Company, which for the first few years of the government was led by Dominic Barton. Exactly. He was leading in, uh, McKinsey while also leading this Economic Advisory Council that gave the government a bunch of policy advice, which they then on went on to accept. So he was on uh, kind of both sides of that issue. And then after that advice came, the government, several departments turned to McKinsey to implement a lot of these things, um, such as uh, immigration reform. And, and another big cost driver seems to be this ongoing problem with the Phoenix pay system, which just can't seem to get resolved. Uh, that was an outsourcing contract. And now they've got outsourcing contracts on top of the outsourcing contract yeah. to try to fix what's gone wrong. So, Bill, does your homework tell you that McKinsey has been the biggest recipient of the third-party contracts over the years? No, they're not uh, the biggest. Um, I think, uh, one, well, one, I mean, <laughs> we're getting into future stories I'm working on here. So, oh, okay, okay. Uh, we won't yeah. let the cat out of the bag too far, then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, they're, they're not the biggest, but it, they were notable because they went from... Uh, Essentially zero. They were not on the federal scene. They weren't getting any federal contracts in the last two years of the of the conservatives, and it's just been on a sharp increase since. 
And it's also interesting, some of the McKinsey contracts are examples of uh, what some of the unions are getting really upset about is, you know, for instance, the McKinsey contract to work on the Phoenix pay system, it started at $4.9 million, and they just amended it in December. Now it's up to $27 million. So, Wow. Um, so that's kind of unusual. You know, you have a public competition, all the companies compete for something, a company wins it at $4.9 million, but then after the fact, it becomes a much more significant contract. So raises some, some issues there. Indeed. So, uh, Bill, uh, in terms of, of justifying this uh, to the taxpayer, uh, the, the government doesn't seem to be particularly interested uh, in, in uh, having an explanation for all of this. What sort of reaction are you receiving from, for example, the private sector with respect to all of this excessive uh, payment or, or perhaps even overpayment for services that should be provided by the civil, civil service? I think you get different reactions. I've certainly had a lot of reaction from people who are involved in this. Either they are public servants or they are uh, our IT consultants. I've heard from some as well, or um, people have been consultants in other areas. I think part of it seems to be driven by, I mean, the federal public service can be an expensive way to go because you these are permanent uh, positions and you've got to pay benefits and yep. vacation and all that kind Pensions, of stuff. So, you bet. Yep. so yeah, so so it can, in theory, be cheaper to do a job by uh, an external IT consultant. Um, the flip side, though, um, is people critical of these relationships. It would be like the consultants come in, they recommend the government take a certain point of view or do a certain project, but then, <laughs> so that's their advice. And then they also bid on implementing the advice, so then, they, they kind of, uh, it's to their benefit to make recommendations that only then they can implement. And the real challenge that the unions are ish, have concerns with is they'll say, well, it's fine to have a, sh- if you have a real short-term need that's genuinely can't be done in the public service, that's fine. But it's when it's things like Phoenix where it's just this ongoing core issue that the federal public service should be able to do in-house and you're outsourcing that. Well, then, well, then these companies kind of have you... Uh, at their whim because you're now providing a corp service and they don't really want to transfer that back into the public service. So right. then it becomes so, a very long-term expensive outsourcing cost. Indeed. Bill, you've been covering this beat for a long time and you mentioned that the opposition parties are very much in uh, together uh, on side in favor of the Auditor General stepping in and doing some kind of analysis, official analysis, cost-benefit analysis, if nothing else. Uh, what sort of appetite do you think there is uh, with the Trudeau government for that degree of accountability from the Auditor General? And can the Auditor General say, I don't care wh- how you feel about this, I'm going to do an audit anyway? Yeah, she absolutely could. Uh, Karen Hogan's the Auditor General, um, and she has the ability to choose what she audits. Um, her office got back to me and said, uh, you know, they take, they take uh, uh, you know, letters, recommendations from the Parliament under consideration. They're, they're not bound right. by them, but they, they do that as a factor when they decide what to audit. And it's a minority parliament, so you've got a majority of MPs with all three parties uh, saying that this is uh, something they'd like her to look at. So we'll just have to see over time. You know, audits are a kind of a slow-moving thing. They take a long time to decide what they're going to do, and then they take it usually a year or two to, to complete. So we'll see. Another issue uh-huh. that has come up, some economists have pointed out, like, there used to be a time when they called them program reviews where the federal government itself would just pick a department, usually three or four at a time, 
and just really go through the nitty-gritty of how they're spending and and you know can any of this be cut or reprofiled to to more current needs and sure that's been the kind of the concern with some of these stories people have been raising is just where's where's that just practice that we used to have in Ottawa just kind of combing through a department and saying what exactly are we doing here where's the money going does this still make sense or should we be uh, cutting back on that and moving money elsewhere Interesting stuff. Bill, uh, liberals spend billions more on outsourced contracts since taking power. That was the first story. We talked about the second story, which included the consulting firm McKinsey. Our guest suggests there's definitely more in the hopper. Keep your eyes on the Globe and Mail in the days to come as Bill Curry uh, analyzes this third-party spending to the tune of too many billions of dollars. Bill, excellent work. Keep it up. And thanks so much for sharing some of your findings with us this morning. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great day. Half of BC's mobile phone users say they have received calls from an individual purporting to represent a government entity like, oh, the Canada Revenue Agency. That's up 15% in just two or three years. This is the latest finding from Research Co. and Mario Canseco, pollster Mr. Canseco, joining us now. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you back with us as we take the pulse of British Columbians. And this one, this is a nuisance that a lot of uh, British Columbians would be happy not to have to deal with. So what kind of numbers are we looking at? I said in the intro, half of our phone users and mobile phone users here say they've received calls. Is that is that the finding? Is that the big headline? 50% of us getting bugged daily? That is the headline, because when we asked this question in 2019, this is in the context of the federal election at the time, right. and we saw a lot of complaints about people who were getting messages asking you to vote for a particular party or to support a specific policy. And when we asked about people who were trying to call you to get money, trying to say that they represented an agency, calling you in a different language, the numbers weren't as high as they are now. So what we've seen over the past couple of years is fewer calls related to political operations, more calls about somebody who's trying to get money out of you. And, you know, the fact that half of us have been targeted by this over the past couple of months certainly suggests that it's not something that is getting better. No, exactly. Now, did you notice, Did was there any uptick in political attempts at communications over this summer during the election that needn't have happened? Well, that has been the major drop when we ask about this. Uh, back in 2019, it was 37% uh, who received this type of message. Only 18% have received it over the past couple of months. So it's okay. definitely shifted in the way that uh, the campaigns have been operating. Uh, there's not a lot of activity between elections as there used to be, but it doesn't mean that we're not getting phone calls that we don't want to be getting. And this is particularly problematic for those who rely on the same uh, mobile phone uh, for work and for leisure. You know, you don't know who's calling you. It might be a client. It might be something urgent from the office, somebody who's calling you from a different place. And then you get the message in a foreign language or you get somebody telling you that there's a warrant for your arrest. So mm -hmm. it's definitely a nuisance. Right. So now the, the headline of the story that brought this to our attention in the first place is tax scam phone calls yeah. on the rise in B.C. Specifically, what type of tax scam calls, Mario, so our listeners can be on, on the lookout for them? Well, the, one of the most uh, prevalent ones is somebody who's calling you saying that they represent the Canada Revenue Agency. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, information 
that is actually provided by the federal government. There's, there's websites, there's also brochures that explain to you that if the Canada Revenue Agency is going to call you, they are not going to be talking about warrants for your arrest. This isn't something that you can solve by talking to somebody on the phone. There right. are different venues in which they would actually talk to you about this. And part of the problem is people get really scared. You know, nobody wants to listen to somebody on the other side of the line saying that there's a warrant that you have to pay. A lot of these payments uh, are asked in Bitcoin or gift cards, which is something that the Canada Revenue Agency would never ask. Um, But it's certainly a situation where somebody who is not properly trained to spot this type of thing could actually do uh, something that they will regret. And, And obviously, when you're facing that kind of situation, when you're under that pressure, you're more likely to believe that you're going to get rid of it if you pay them, but it's only going to make things worse. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, that the strategy seems to have changed, Mario. The shoe seems to be on the other foot because it wasn't too many years ago that the tax scam was, hi there, this is Jack from the Canada Revenue Agency, and you're the lucky winner of a tax refund, and all we need is all your personal information. So that was the enticement. That was the carrot and stick. You were going to get some free money because you overpaid on your taxes. Now the strategy is, we're going to arrest you unless you send us money immediately. That's a pretty dramatic change, Mario. It definitely is. And if you go back even to the 1980s or 1990s, when, you, when we used to get this by mail, not even email, you know, something that said that you inherited something, something that suggested that you're the last living relative of somebody who died and who's going to give you money, provided right. you pay a little bit of a fee. It's a little bit different now. And, you know, part of the reason for this is that we're getting so many phone calls today, so much information, and people maybe do not have the time to review it properly. One of the things that they're doing, even though we don't see a specific situation where seniors are being more more targeted, um, it's the fact that they have all the phone numbers and all they need is one person to fall through the cracks, one person to say, okay, how much do I have to pay? And this is something that is a nuisance for everybody who knows that it's not going to be conducive to anything. Mm-hmm. You can hang up the phone. You can stay on the line if you have time, uh, but never give them any information. The moment somebody gives them information, it's impossible to break. Right. I wanted to ask you about another kind. We, cause we, between, we have two mobile phones in our home. And between the two of us, on an average day, Mario, between the two of us, we'll get a half a dozen robocalls. And you can, you know, you look at your caller ID, and it's a local number. It's not one of these 888 prefixes, and you go, ah, forget about it. It's a local number. So it's cleverly camouflaged to look like it could be your next door neighbor giving you a call. And that's nasty, too, isn't it? It is. They are getting certainly more sophisticated with this type of situation because of caller ID particularly. One of the things that has been reported consistently, and this is a number that we're all familiar with, 1-800-O-Canada. They can pretend that the phone call is coming from 1-800-O-Canada, which would never call you. It's It's a line that you call. But somebody who's not really well-versed in this stuff says, oh, well, Services Canada is calling, I have to take the phone call. And then it makes it more believable. So the fact that they have more sophistication on, on, on this is uh, certainly more detrimental for those who don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. And the other car, the other part of calls, uh, the other uh, frequent calls that we receive in our household, at least, Mario, uh, are calls in, in, in another language. I, I know it's Chinese, but I'm unable to discern whether it's Cantonese or Mandarin. I'm, I don't know the difference uh, uh, to, to speak, but it's definitely a Chinese language. And we get at least a couple of those every day. 
Well, this has skyrocketed. There's no two ways about it. Uh, we were at only 31% of BC residents who received this type of phone call in a foreign language back in 2019. Now it's up to 51%. And it's happening more to people in Metro Vancouver. 61% right. of those we spoke to in Metro Vancouver say, I get these phone calls, I get these messages. It's not that you're being targeted because of your ethnicity. It's that because of the fact that there's so many people in the lower mainland who speak this language, sure. it's easier for them to, to essentially purchase those numbers and to try to call every single number that starts with 604 or starts with 778 until somebody understands the message and takes it. It's a nuisance because we don't even know what it means. But there might right. be somebody out there who listens to something like this. And many of these messages are related to visa situations, problems with packages, somebody sending you something. Those of us who do not speak those languages don't care and just believe it's a nuisance, but it's still something that is targeting people who are here. And they are being told about all sorts of crazy stuff. A law just changed in China, and now you need to register, you need to give me this number, you need to give right. me that. We need to remember that these are governments that certainly operate that way many times. So they're trying to scare people into giving them information or money. Right. Mario, I wanted to ask you, because I don't know whether you included this in your survey questionnaire when you came up with this, but we were, many of us are under perhaps the mistaken impression that there is some kind of federal no-call control system that's supposed to be in place, and we're supposed to be able to register with it and not receive these annoying blinking phone calls we get by the handful every day. What happened to that? There's a couple of problems with that, and I'm glad you mentioned it. It's impossible to apply this to people who are, who are operating from overseas. So if you have a robo-dialer and you're in a foreign country, you're not going to be subjected to the do not call list. So that is uh -huh. one of the problems. What's also interesting here is there was an emphasis from the federal government over the past few years to really focus on spam. And that is the one thing that they're definitely targeting. Don't send people emails. Everybody has to go to a specific situation. But again, we face the same problem. If I'm somebody who's trying to sell you medicine or any other kind of service and I'm not operating from Canada, I'm not subjected to a spam list. So the rules are in place and they work very well for situations related to calls coming from Canada. But you can't wow. really do anything if somebody's using their robo-dialer um, to do something about this. So more robust legislation at a global level would certainly help. You know, it's been a, an interesting dilemma because when that came in, you know, it was very challenging uh, for a lot of people who are trying to do telemarketing. And in a way, we don't get as many telemarketing calls as we did in the early 2000s, right? So it mm -hmm. has worked, but it doesn't work for something like this because it's not something that Canada can police across the entire world. Interesting stuff. Now, I, I'm glad I asked that question because I think a lot of us are under the, the impression that uh, if you sign up with the no-call list, you should just be able to avoid all of this stuff. Well, if you're getting, you're still getting calls uh, and you're on the no-call list, the don't-call list, then that call pretty clearly is coming to you from outside of Canada. That's a safe assumption, isn't it? It's a safe assumption, and it's also what makes it so complicated. You know, we've seen uh, cases of people who get really scared and pay money, and then when they try to talk to the authorities, the authorities will tell them there is nothing we can do about sure. this. Uh, the way in which you pay, the fact that they call from overseas is going to make it very complicated for us to try to get your money back. So best course of action is to just hang up, you know. It, it's, it's not a situation... Uh, where the Canada Revenue Agency would take these steps and use those venues to communicate with you. If this were something far more serious, they would not be calling you from a number with somebody who 
couldn't even know where they were calling from. You know, one of the yeah. problems that we see with this is um, they're not even aware of the regulations. And one time I had to take a phone call and my reaction was to ask for service in French because it's the Canada Revenue Agency and they hung up immediately. Aha, good strategy. That's very clever. And uh, another way to avoid or reduce the degree of annoyance that robocalls seem to be able to provide every single day. Mario, thanks for this very important information. We do appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure, Sterling. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.